Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about planes, trains, and automobiles, and we're talking about it with the great Clementine Ford. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is a 1987 American comedy film written, produced, and directed by John Hughes. It stars Steve Martin in John Candy. Clementine Ford, a repeat guest on our show, is an Australian feminist writer, broadcaster, and public speaker. She is the author of the new book, I Don't, The Case Against Marriage, which as I understand has an Australian publisher. She is presently looking for a U.S. publisher, but here's a bit about the book. Incendiary feminist and best-selling author Clementine Ford presents The Inarguable Case Against Marriage for the Modern Woman, provocative, controversial, and above all, compellingly and persuasively argued. We love Clem. She's been on the show to talk about Top Gun. She's been on the show to talk about Fargo. She's the very best. I'm so glad she's back. How are you doing? What's going on? How is your life? How is your world? What books are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are you eating? What's happening out there? Let us know where you are good or you are good pod on whichever of the social platforms you're using these days. We're, uh, we're still on Twitter. <laughs> we're on, we're on Instagram. We're on blue sky. We're on threads. I'm on TikTok at Alex Steed. I do some show related stuff over there. We would, uh, we would love to hear from you wherever the social media happens in your life. This is a stressful time of year. We're entering the holiday season. The world is a scary place, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be easy to forget, but I'm asking you not to forget that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions. Uh, thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for making the whole thing possible. In exchange for your support, you get bonus episodes. We have a bonus episode coming out about the movie Debs. Excited for that. We're taking a quick break from our ongoing bonus series about Hannibal and Carrie Bradshaw to talk about Debs. It's going to be fun. It'll be out later this month. I mentioned in last week's introduction that I was going to a demonstration in Los Angeles put on by Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, had a wonderful time. It was great to see all of those people there. So many people to hear uh, voices from the community, hear rabbis, hear civil rights leaders in town, uh, hear all sorts of people call in for the peace. It was nice. I uh, linked up with folks who listened to the show and we made some noise. So if you're looking for that sort of thing, they have actions and activities throughout the country. Look up jewishvoiceforpeace.org. Also, I am so late, despite the fact that friends of the show, VJ and Harmony Colangelo, have told me to check this out. I'm so late to the phenomenon that is Hood Slam, which is a kind of like an indie wrestling event that happens in Oakland. It happens every two weeks. And I went for the first time. <laughs> Last week with my friend Sam, we had a delightful time. I, I don't even know what to say about it. It is pandemonium. Uh, so much of the crowd, as far as I could tell, was queer. So much of what was going on in the ring uh, had at least one foot in being queer. <laughs> it's been going on for a long time. One of their mottos is leave your fucking kids at home. It's a 21 plus event. It was a delight. It was, I, 
had so much fun. I saw wrestlers Maki Ito, Laura Fraser, Hop Daddy, Link to the Future, who is uh, both gay and a reference to Zelda. <laughs> so just count me in. Uh, Sawyer Wreck, Dark Sheik, El Chupacabra, Vipress. Uh, just so, so many great folks. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It was a fantastic night. Start to finish, I had a blast. I can't say enough good about this event. I know many of you have known about this for well over a decade, but I can't say enough good. I look forward to checking out wrestling events close to Los Angeles, but this was so fun to check this out in Oakland. I had a blast. So I always ask y'all what you are watching and thinking about and listening to. That is something that grabbed my attention. I can't wait to go again. I, I It's every two weeks. I don't know how I'm going to keep up that habit, but I will find a way. All right, let's hear an ad super quickly, and then let's dive in to planes, trains, and automobiles. Indulge in the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's extraordinary jigsaw puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail. Ravensburger's puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preference or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. Start small! and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. 40,000 pieces, that's a lot of pieces. I have the ADHD. I have to start small. <laughs> Hello, Sarah Marshall. I don't, I, I just can't, I don't know how this movie would say hello. Hello. Alex Steed. <laughs> oh my gosh. Are you, you're probably just overwhelmed from being the genuine article. I think that that's what's happening right now. I am the genuine article. <laughs> and you know what? Yes. Look, this movie is about, I think fundamentally, and I'm going way above my pay grade here, but my understanding of the schlemiel and the schlemazel, as we, many of us first heard mentioned, if not by a grandparent, then in the opening of Laverne and Shirley. Schlemiel, Schlemazel, Haas and Pfeffer Incorporated. Incorporated. We're gonna do it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Classically, of the Schlemiel and the Schlemazel, one spills his soup and one gets the soup spilled on him. Oh, great. And John Candy in this movie is a soup spiller. A real article. And I am a soup spiller. You sure are. And this is a very deep movie for me. Yeah, this movie is a dip. And, and for people who watch it, I feel like everyone has a little schlemiel and a little schlemazel in them. And they debate sort of how they could become more of the, you know, grass is greener other side. Mm. So I can't wait. I cannot wait to talk about this. And who? Sarah Marshall. Who do we have the pleasure of diving into planes, trains, and automobiles with? We are diving with our friend Clementine Ford, who is also our masculinity correspondent. And Clementine, if you want a little plaque, we will get you one. But hello, how are you? 
I am all, I'm like a hundred times better for having that description given to me. <laughs> I'm going to start adding that, adding that to my bio. Makes it sound like you've got a fedora and you're always standing out in an airfield. Be like, yeah. the troubles of two little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this world. I've got to go be the masculinity correspondent. Dispatches from the front line of patriarchy. Uh, I, I'm good. I'm good. I'm here, overjoyed, thrilled to be back with you both. It's always a pleasure to come and discuss movies and masculinity. I, I mean, I hopefully can bring something more than just a deep critique of men in the world. But today, maybe that's that's what I'm going to bring. And there's so much more. And, you know, this is a movie about so many other things. It is... 35 now 36 years old coming up on that i think and so it's uh we're, we're analyzing an american millennial so interestingly 35 36 is around the age that john candy was when he made it yeah 37 yeah isn't that wild i don't want to talk about <laughs> yeah 37 so wild there's something as well about this sort of time capsule of looking at these two men in the 80s like masculinity in the 80s is so different to masculinity now in terms of how it's represented. Like oh, yeah. the whole family thing, like a working man. Like it's just, I don't know. I feel like I would see a movie about the Shamil and the Shamazel now of 37-year-old men, and it would they would look a lot different. Yeah. It would be Seth Rogen <laughs> yeah. and Justin Long, and they would just be like, Two guys living in a loft in L.A. with different jobs and like one is, you know, divorced. Half a job they'd have. Yeah. And they would like and they would like wear hoodies and like play Galaga, you know? <laughs> yeah. We can talk about that kind of like evolution of or de devolution of men on film. But unfortunately, that is sort of my type, too which is terrible. My friend said to me recently, she's like, you like men with half a job. <laughs> and that's like, sadly true. If they have a whole job, they don't have time for you. And to be fair, like this was what from a time when you could be a shower curtain ring salesman and have that be your only job. Mm -hmm. Like this was yeah. from a time, this was from the last time <laughs> where there was one full-time job. <laughs> 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 and on that one full-time job, you could have a beautiful two-story house in, is it Gross Point that, that Steve Martin's house is in at the end? So, no, somewhere in the Chicago suburbs, but like it's in the, it's probably in Shermer. It's in the unnamed yeah. Chicago suburb where the trees are wide and lined with tall trees. <laughs> that house is not an existing house, like the Home Alone house. Mm. Like the Home Alone house is a house that someone bought the other, uh, like last year, I think. That is a house they built for the movie. Shut up. This was also the last time in Hollywood where you just build a fucking house for the movie that is in like three exterior shots and one interior shot. And they're like, we're going to need to have an extension on this house just to really. <laughs> and it's like, John, just find a house that exists. We're not even in it for more than four minutes. The other super quick piece of I, I'm going to be insufferable because I actually read about the movie for once. But the other super amazing quick piece of trivia that's just from Hollywood yesterday from a time long gone is the guy who's in the truck who wants to, them to sit in the back of the truck. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to be in the movie for one day. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to shoot for one mm -hmm. day. And for $1,000, which in the 1980s, again, like I think like for a day now you got like $200 for $1,000 in the 80s. Which was like $5,000 now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then they kept 
changing because they were chasing snow for this integral scene as well uh, that is here and gone in 30 seconds right in, in a throwaway scene they kept chasing snow and so i think he was on set he said when he left to go on the movie he was scrounging 300 dollars for his rent and when he finally came back from like i think 10 days on set he <laughs> bought a house good for dylan baker future star of happiness yes exactly <laughs> For a, th- for a guy, I can't even remember what his face looks like. <laughs> oh, I can. Because he's been in a lot of stuff since then, probably because he could focus on his craft after he was in yeah. planes, trains, and automobiles. Okay, cool. We're in. We're fully in. Before we get further in, Sarah Marshall. Yeah. What is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles about? Um, For listeners on the spectrum, this movie is like barely even about those things, I have to say. It's about the two guys who are angrily inside of them. And that's important to emphasize. There's so little about trains in this movie. You don't learn a thing about how they work. Um, I will also say based on that anecdote and also how I know the filming of Fargo, a movie we previously discussed on this show, went, never write snow in your movie, especially now. No. There was a time that made sense to do it. And that time was the 80s when the money was there. But the time was if you were making a holiday movie that may one day be deemed by TBS, the movie that they're going to play for 24 hours in a row. Mm. If you were vying for that role, absolutely. But that time is long gone. Yeah. But as a result, yes, to again, being more insufferable, like a, a movie like this typically takes like 30 days to shoot. But because they were chasing snow, it took 80 days to shoot. <laughs> Dylan Baker was very happy about that. Which is interesting because snow isn't even synonymous with Thanksgiving. So, I mean, I realize I have to. Well, let's get into it. Okay. So, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles comes out in 1987, which is interesting as a period in John Hughes's career because it seems as if he is done imagining himself as a thoughtful, sensitive teenage girl tomboy depicted generally by Molly Ringwald, but sometimes Mary Stuart Masterson, (laughs) and now is ready to just think about himself as a beleaguered family man. CF, this movie, she's having a baby, Curly Sue, and really John Hughes at his most mature, which is arguably Uncle Buck. Mm, Yes. But we're not talking about that yet. Shocking. Shocking that that has not come up Mm -hmm. yet. It really is. Yeah. It's maybe because it's too perfect to film. Yes. Agreed. (laughs) And so Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is about Steve Martin having the Clark Griswold type job of corporate widget. He works in sales, so he's at this big New York meeting presenting new cosmetics ads to this old man who, you know, any kind of job where you're in a skyscraper acting like something stupid is very important. That's what the dads do in these movies. And what literally John Hughes did at some point. Oh, no. He was a copywriter in marketing and in this, like, I think Steve Martin's like one step above that. Yeah, and we can see that he found it very fulfilling. (laughs) And this movie is also like full of other John Hughes regulars in a great way. So like Steve Martin is like trying to slide out of this meeting so he can make the six o'clock flight home to be back in time for Thanksgiving with his young wife, Layla Robbins, who has a very sad face, which makes it hard for me to tell what she's trying to express at any given point in this movie. 
I can't wait to talk about this later because I've seen this movie so many times and never thought to like find out why that's the case. And there is a reason, but I it's so fucking confounding. Is there? Yeah, there's a whole the editor's cut of this movie was four hours long. Was it? So but like just consider that like that's usually Release when the, the, the whoever cut. I want to <laughs> see that. That sounds insane. So like background on that is like that's typically when the like the director goes, here are all the things I want to see in the cut so I can scale back yeah. from that. And the editor will just will hand you all that. But this movie was like kind of a pre-Judd uh, Apatow movie. Apatow. They did <laughs> Apatow, which I've called him a lot <laughs> in my life. They did what has since become known as his method, which they would shoot to the script for two or three times and then he would give the actors in every scene free reign to do it improv. Mm, that's great. And so there was just so much film mm. to work with. That That's sort of what they worked back with. But a whole subplot of the movie that had a little bit more explanation mm. is something has happened in their marriage mm. and every time he's like I'm over here I'm over here over here she rightly suspects that he's having an affair oh yeah and there's yeah. like a little whisper of that in the beginning but I do wish there had been ever so I mean this this movie's <laughs> 85 minutes long they could have afforded 90 seconds yeah. on that I mean and it feels as well that there's a lot in the movie I mean it makes sense that the, the filming method was just okay just improv because a lot of the movie doesn't seem to be driven by story so much as it is driven by the desire to see Steve Martin face acting. Yes. <laughs> yes. For sure. And she, you're right, she's got like such a beautiful, sad, like she's so stunning and just sad faces. Like she looks like she should be in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that single, that single tear that runs down her cheek at the end. She looks like an angel. Yeah. An angel watching you commit murder. <laughs> there could have been, as you say, Alex, 30 seconds to give some context. Also, by the way, she's afraid that he's having an affair. He is so miserable. He's such a miserable person. Who would go there? It makes the, and again, we're jumping straight to the end, but like, <laughs> I have always found the funniest scene in this whole movie the end which uh -huh. tonally is in a different movie it's wild <laughs> that movie it's like the ending of Thelma and Louise where it's like so tragic and intense and gay and then they like jump in with that Glenn Fry song that's like <laughs> you're a part of me and you're like no 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 calm down stop stop doing this the other thing about that is like what's that song that they play at the end every time every time you go away you take a piece <laughs> of me with you yes it's which is a fucking banger it's so weird in the movie but the reason that's there is that Elton John wrote the score to this movie what and then two days before whatever he was supposed to submit it the label that put out the soundtrack was like, uh, is it okay if we own the masters? And Elton John was oh. like, no. And then he just didn't <laughs> allow it. So they shoved that song in the end of the movie as opposed Whoa. to like what was supposed to be there. You know what's funny is that you said Elton John, and for a full 30 seconds, I my brain heard and understood Elvis Costello. <laughs> Which would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, I'll stop derailing with trivia, but there's, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because the whole, my whole time with this movie is I'm like, what is going on between these two? What is their marriage? <laughs> I mean, and it makes, it does fit really well that like, yeah, he's fucked up. And, <laughs> and I will say that Layla Robbins is always really interesting presence in whatever she is in. And I associate her most strongly, unfortunately, with the episode of Sex in the City where she microaggresses Carrie at Pastis about <laughs> writing a sex column. So that's fun. Anyway, so Steve Martin rushes out of this meeting to try and get a cab to the airport. He has like a cab getting duel with Kevin Bacon, star of the John Hughes film. She's having a baby and like bribes him $75 and then John Candy someone who turns out to be John Candy goes ahead and takes the cab while Steve Martin is buying it from someone else because he's a happy-go-lucky guy so Steve Martin finally gets to the airport his flight is delayed and he strikes up a conversation with a guy who's reading a book called is it the Canadian Mounted the Canadian Mounted yep <laughs> it does feel to me like a weird like watching it now and not to be like too fucking 2023 about things, but it feels to me jarring to see this guy that you're meant to feel not sorry for, but to feel like so much warmth for that he represents the best of humanity. And you're watching him read like an X-rated book in the airport. And then later on when they're on the bus, he's like, oh, look, they're like basically almost fucking on the bus like it's just a bit jarring mm -hmm. in, in the context of now you know i don't think and not to push back but like i don't think he represents the best of humanity i think he just represents like a regular guy versus like a corporate fuck <laughs> yeah i have kind of an emotional response to this movie partly because like the idea of john candy being mistreated is very upsetting to me mm, the scene in the motel i mean yeah. i was sort of skipping ahead but but he is I, I suppose when we say like the best of humanity it's more like the the purity of it like mm. there's sure. something about him standing there and he's he's got his little mustache yeah. he's a man but he's a little boy too he's he's standing in the motel and it's it is pjs men are always boys in their pajamas that's why they don't wear them anymore yeah, and it doesn't matter that he's sort of also been smoking in bed and, like, exploded all these beer cans. He's, like, essentially a kind of childlike energy. Yeah, for sure. So that, there's that. You're like, don't you be mean to my John Candy. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing that is set up so well is that John Hughes really pushes the audience on being like it's like you i feel that way about john candy for sure but i'm like if i'm on a plane and even if you're just a sweet boy and you're getting your socks in my face yeah mm -hmm. i understand that i need to grow as a human a little bit but you need to learn some fucking <laughs> yeah. boundaries i mean that is the thing he is actually quite intolerable yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. he's a man spreader across the board well he's just he's just filled with odors and you know what <laughs> that plane is too small and that is not his fault i'm serious well we were when i was watching it last night my friend heather was like She's from Massachusetts, and she was like, this plane, like, this is the 80s. This is American planes in the 80s. This is too small for American planes in the 80s. Yeah. Like, I feel like you get with Steve Martin this kind of curmudgeonly, like, I get it. He paid for a first-class ticket, but you're flying to Chicago. It's 45 minutes. Like, what the fuck, dude? Totally. Yeah, he sucks in that interaction. Mm -hmm. It's like, just take it, dude. <laughs> This is really like a, a movie about the concept of customer service in America. 
which is very interesting. I mean, I don't think the movie knows it's being thoughtful about it, but like there's definitely insight to be had. And like, I think customer service is like one of the things that truly makes America what it is, not the actuality, but the concept of it and the, the kinds of expectations people have about it. And it's like, one thing that I find interesting is that we now use the term emotional labor to refer to anything we don't want to do in a relationship, but it originally mm. meant like the need to perform an emotion while doing your job. So like you can't just give a blizzard to a customer. You have to be like, and here's your blizzard. Mm. I'm so happy to be making this blizzard for you. Yeah, I'm going to turn it upside down to prove that I did it right, which is like so cruel to the teens that have to do that. I can't make eye contact when that's happening. And just like think of the the number of kids who have like just dumped out a slightly soft <laughs> blizzard. <laughs> On the driveway of a drive-through and had to do it again. Well, I think I think to your point about this being about customer, because we have these great interactions between Steve Martin and whoever is representing whatever corporation he believes has failed them, mm-hmm. and his responses are often fully inappropriate. Mm-hmm. I heard a reviewer be like, "He's not being ang- he's not being mean to the what's the actress's name who's in Ferris Bueller, Edie McClurg." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not being mean to her. He's being mean to like the company. It's like that's a person. No, he's yelling at her. That's a woman who's getting yelled at by this mm. guy who's gotten sworn at however many times, and he's upset that she's gonna get her crescent rolls too. <laughs> but you know something that's only become more and more true since this came like this was back when like corporations certainly had like were fucked in all of their ways but like largely were seemingly trying to like make a customer happy and mm-hmm. that is gone like that mm-hmm. is done like everything barely works now and also we spent a century being told that like if it didn't work you should just get in touch with the company and they'll make it right you can't do that anymore so everyone's right. just like an orphan child of this like corporate wasteland yes mm. dealing with a kafka-esque bureaucracy yes and that's what makes like i think that that's what makes Neil sometimes a bit more sympathetic as I've gotten mm-hmm. older than when I was younger, not because of how he behaves. It is a masterclass mm-hmm. in how not to behave, but you understand that core frustration. Mm. Right. And the the lack of someone to ever talk to, 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 and the, you know, also to skip ahead, there's a sequence in this movie where he gets dropped off to pick up a rental car. The rental car isn't there. The shuttle has gone. Cell phones don't meaningfully exist. And so he just has to like walk back to the car rental agency, like down an embankment covered in snow across the highway across a runway and that's what it feels like in many ways today to like deal with these companies that you know you can't find a person to fix a problem you can't cancel a subscription for something Mm. right really anymore and yet also at the same time if you buy a single sheet pan from a single company one time I'm looking at you, Great Jones. Stop emailing me. I don't need that many sheet pans. Nobody does. Sarah, I am not joking when I say, and they've since fixed this, it seems. The only place I can get size 13 Converse Chuck Taylors in a store is at Journey. Which which is is, really funny. (laughs) Yeah, it's the only reason why me, a person who looks just like the 40-year-old man he is, is going into Journeys. That's why. So I'll go into Journeys, and I I tried to get shoes the last time I was there, or two times ago, because, again, they've since fixed this. 
and they were like, uh, can we have your email address? And I was like, no. Mm-hmm. And they were like, why? And I was like, well, no, you just don't need it. And they're like, well, we need your it. Your shoe store. Right. They're like, we need it in case there's a return. I was like, I'm not going to return it. They're they're fine. And they're 13. I know it's going to work. Or They're shoes. What are you going to do? They didn't sell me the shoes. What? They were like, well, if anything goes wrong, we can't do anything. And then it's going to be a problem. So and then I was just like, we, we got so into the conversation that I want to admit that this was me. I was like, I'm I'm through. I don't need this. And I left. Yeah. But the point is that you have to get through like many minutes of conversation in order to justify not giving your email right. address to a company. And to be fair, from an employee who like has, I'm sure, been trained that they have to do this totally, and it's not totally. their fault. No. But it is the fault of somebody else that we can be mad at. Yeah, I have no ill will towards this person who was yeah. basically led under the impression that they'd get fired if they didn't get my email address. Which is fine. And it's like, and you know who I don't think positively about it, businesses that won't stop bothering me. <laughs> well, and also the ones that the ones that do it with like this not even thinly veiled passive aggression. You know, like mm-hmm. you'll get it's Clementine. It's been three months since you <laughs> logged on to the website. Don't you care about your health? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just gonna give up on all technology. Yeah. So I watched, I know we're not quite done getting through the premise of the movie, but um, I, I, don't think getting, you, I don't even think we're 10 minutes in. But. <laughs> I just wanted to say that one of the reasons why I, I don't even know if I love this movie or if it's just so deeply embedded in my experience mm. of being a human, because I watched mm. it so many times with my family when I was a kid, mm. which so many people would have done. And mm. my mother loved it. So it's like that connection to my mom too, but it feels like one of those movies where when you go and rewatch it, you're like, the the plot line is fairly simple and it does mm-hmm. in many ways seem to be like a lot of sketches kind of drawn mm-hmm. together. And a lot of it as well. Now you're like, that's it's a little bit clunky in terms of like how it's done. Like the whole sort of like Kevin Bacon getting the cab in the, in the first sequence of the film. Like, so for a, a movie that's only 85 minutes and they cut out all of the exposition material <laughs> of the, of the wife was, that was completely nonsensical. All of the woman bits. But they've left in a lot of stuff that sort of just is kind of like sketch like. Oh, we had to see Steve Martin try to get a cab from three different jerks, (laughs) but we couldn't understand why the wife was upset. That was too much. Yeah. But I think that one of the things that's interesting to me as an Australian viewer is I sort of culturally as a bystander feel like I have some understanding about how important the holidays are to Americans just from watching movies, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I don't really get it. So it's like fascinating watching all of these. We don't get it either. Is it something specifically as well to do with the excess of the eighties, you know, that, well, yeah, we're all like chasing the corporate dollar. We're all working for the man, but at heart, we remember what's really important. And that's family. Yeah. It's Christmas. Yeah. It's the spirit of Christmas. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So Steve Martin, he's rushing to get on this plane. He gets to the airport. He meets John Candy, the guy who ended up stealing his cab. They kind of have a moment of just like, you know, John Candy trying to interact and Steve Martin not, you know, particularly wanting to, which will be a theme. And Steve Martin gets on the plane. He had a first class ticket. He's put in coach. There's like a cut scene where he's like trying to eat his uh, plain meal, which is such a funny thing that we used to complain about because now you're on a nine hour flight and they come around twice and give you pretzels. Which you have to pay for. It's terrible. 
<laughs> so yeah, I like that sometimes you get those tiny little buttery flavored pretzels for free, but they're like, you know, enough for a meal for a guinea pig, you know, and uh if you're a flight attendant, God bless you. That seems like the hardest job I can think of. <laughs> sure does. You get thanked for nothing and blamed for everything. And, and that's what we're doing now, I guess. And so he's on a flight where he is seated next to John Candy, who is trying to have a chat with him. And he just doesn't want to. And then because there's a storm in O'Hare, which attempting to fly in and out of Chicago in the winter is, I think, something that a lot of people will have to do at least at some point in their lives and it often goes completely awry and i feel like that's part of why this movie is like so directly relatable holiday travel in north america is asking for trouble it's interesting <laughs> that we don't have any big obligatory family gatherings in fucking june i love i do love that in the beginning of the movie which i i never really see as a harbinger of things to come but it, this is the first time i did ferris bueller's dad mm -hmm. basically like like schools <laughs> schools steve martin neil he's like my son has taught me a couple things about working smarter not harder <laughs> he's like i'm not flying at six on the tuesday before thanksgiving like why not just like leave a couple hours later and give yourself some time and like yeah like that is <laughs> mm -hmm. that's the way why did steve martin schedule it the hour after he gets out of work <laughs> It's a great question. It makes way more sense now what you said about this like totally cut backstory of the fractious nature of the marriage. When he's like, oh, I promised Susan that I'd be home by nine. Right. That makes no sense without that context. <laughs> like nine, 11, what? She's got three kids. She doesn't need to see you. She's annoyed already. Right, right. You're, you're totally, I hadn't caught. I do. I remember him saying that, but I had like I hadn't put that in the context of the backstory thing. Is it's like why the why like she's she'll be fine if you get home when you're asleep. She's asleep. Yeah. yeah, and it's also <laughs> interesting that this whole movie is about kind of I would say Steve Martin falling in love gradually with yeah. John Candy. It is, mm. and it is the classic rom com structure to be like she's a fuss budget and he's an irish guy i'm thinking of leap year and through circumstance they're forced to fall in love she's reese witherspoon and he's from the south like that's, that's, that's a classic he's from the south and she's also from the south but respectable yeah that's sweet home alabama she's a corporate lawyer and he owns an inn in connecticut <laughs> <laughs> these are classic well these are also all more or less the the plots of the hallmark movies right yeah yeah like our favorite movie christmas town where <laughs> candace cameron gets stranded in what geographically has to be worcester, worcester massachusetts, massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god all right so they're on the plane so they're on the plane the plane gets grounded because there's a storm in chicago they end up in wichita there aren't any hotel rooms anywhere or motel rooms or holiday in rooms. <laughs> and this happened to me once when I missed a connecting flight in Vancouver and everybody was trying to get rooms who missed their connection. And it, there wasn't a storm or anything. There just aren't any hotel rooms in Vancouver, I guess. It was a pretty harrowing experience. Yeah, I think it's worth it. So it's worth bringing up this thing 
that Sarah, you and I were talking about earlier because you're th- 30, you're, you're an age mm-hmm. in the middle of that decade. I'm 35. I say it a lot. You're 35. It's a fun age to say. I was like, I know she said it, but it's not for what you're right. Thanks. You're 35. You're correct. You're 35. And this movie is 36 years old. And so mm-hmm. you're looking at kind of what the world was like, at least in the States when you were born. Yeah. And the thing I thought the most about while watching this movie is they find out that they can't land in O'Hare in the air. Mm-hmm. They don't even necessarily, it mm. seems like there wasn't an announcement or if there was an announcement, Steve Martin missed it. So they they land in Wichita. And then your job as a human being is to have cash, ideally, on you. Or traveler's checks. And if you don't have a change purse already filled with change ready to go, get some change, go to a payphone look through a phone book for ho- mm-hmm. just any hotel, no information about what kind of hotel it is, just like a list of hotels. And you call them one by one and be like, do you have a room for me tonight while mm-hmm. they're getting flooded with everyone else doing the same exact mm-hmm. thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what's happening in travel. So when he goes, he can't find any motels and Dell's like, oh, well, I, you know, you called your wife when you got off the plane, <laughs> you big dumb dumb. I called the Braidwood Inn and I've got myself a room. You know, I'm sure that the guy can hook you up. So there is this sort of, I mean, it, I'm not saying anything deep here. It's so obvious in the movie, but Steve Martin has to slum it with the blue collar workers of America by like making his way across state lines and you're like staying in shitty motels. And whereas Dell sort of represents this kind of like optimistic, well, yeah, I like talk to these people all the time because I travel all over America. I meet all kinds of people Mm -hmm. and I know how to be nice to them so that they do stuff for me. Well, this is what John Hughes said about this. And this is the best, I think this nails everything you just said, Clem. And I think it just like nails what the movie's about. He said, I like taking dissimilar people, putting them together and finding out what's common to us all. Mm. Part of the point is there is a privileged few who operate between New York and Los Angeles or London and Paris. But if something screws up and they get off Mm. the executive track, it's someone like Del Griffith who knows how to get them home. Mm. What kept the movie going was the opposites, two dissimilar guys. If it wasn't for the storm, someone like Neil Page never would have met a guy like Del. And I love that so much. Like, Neil is Mm -hmm. hard despite the fact that like I feel a bit more like a Neil than I do it I'm a Dell at heart but a Neil in operation mm-hmm. you know and that's hard to see sometimes and hard to reconcile but I love that you know like right down to when we get them on the bus and there's like Dell's leading everyone in songs mm-hmm. and Neil picks like kind of like an esoteric song to sing that he believes everyone's going to know and then Dell is the one who knows that like everyone knows the Flintstones theme song let's sing the Flintstones theme song like this guy like knows mm-hmm. how to operate outside of first class (laughs) and that's a huge part of his appeal yeah and he probably also saved neil's marriage yeah for sure and we see that in her eyes at the the last weird scene (laughs) (laughs) this reminds me of like i was talking to caroline o'donohue the greatest living podcaster uk edition Mm -hmm. uh and our great friend and she was talking about the episode of The Simpsons with Lisa's wonderful teacher, played by guest voice Dustin Hoffman, and her dad disappointing her and him apologizing and saying, oh, honey, you're going so far and you're going to places where guys like me don't even get to serve drinks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and that that's like, I don't know, that Dallas is such a Homer Simpson character 
And there's a sort of like Homer to Dell to Jackie Gleason kind of continuum that we're working with. And I don't know, this movie is interesting to me because it's about a character who theoretically is in the right in a lot of what he's complaining about. And yet you also understand that like he, I don't know, that he he doesn't, he's not getting a lot of joy out of life, I don't think. Like mm. he wants to get back to his kids. but And there's a moment where, well, yeah, to get on track with the movie. So yeah, he like, he gets to saying John Candy's motel room. We have like a mix up with their diners club cards as well, I think, which is like a, invented by Alfred Bloomingdale. Mm-hmm. And so they share the room, but it's like it's this tiny double bed. Like Dell takes a shower and uses all the towels. He like turns on the vibrating mattress, which, by the way, I've been in many crappy motels and I've never seen a vibrating like Magic Fingers massage bed ever. I'm sure they don't really. There must exist somewhere, but I think they all burned out around like 85. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The Magic Fingers Repairman's League (laughs) stopped really being as robust. And so, like, he, like, turns on this Magic Fingers massage, which, like, explodes some beers he has on the bed, which, like, to be fair, why should he have seen that coming, actually? (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, Steve Martin is just, like, pissed. He has to sleep in a big wet pack. She kind of, like, loses it when Dell is clearing his sinuses, which, again people have to do but the the thing about living with other people is that there's just no solution a lot of the time like you just Mm. there's nothing to be done and so steve martin like goes on a tear about how annoying he is and he was trying to like subtly communicate to him that he didn't want to talk to him on the plane without actually saying it and he just like goes on for too long it's one of those things where like he has real grievances and like he could have made the point in a way that painted him in a much better light but like he goes for too long with it and then Dell is like basically is like do you talk to your kids like that mm. and it's like does he talk to his kids like that yeah do you talk to your kids like grown peter pan from hook <laughs> i mean i did feel like when so that, that whole scene where he's yelling at him is pretty heartbreaking to watch also probably because well certainly for me and i and i would venture a guess for two of you as well i'm always afraid that someone thinks that my stories are boring and that they have no point and that they're directionless i know everyone's stories yeah. are boring sometimes you know that's why we're we're not all at the comedy store <laughs> so he's like articulating your deepest fear which is that you just go on and on and you're like pulling the string out and you just can't shut up but when he isn't like they're lying in the bed and he's like well now you didn't realize that the cans would explode and so on. now i have to sleep in the big wet patch and he's like, do you slap your kids when they spill milk? It's like, yeah, but you're not a kid, Dell. That's yeah. the thing. You're not, And you're not his child, but you are a grown man who is smoking in bed and is, you know, the, the beer thing. I mean, maybe not foreseeable that they would explode, but. Yeah. When you share a bed with someone, you just need them to understand physics, you know? Yeah. And there's, yeah. What are you, you going to do? I mean, and then, you know, of, of course, he's a traveling salesman. And for reasons, we also know that he's never had to worry. He hasn't had to worry for a long time about, like, yeah. the, the person. Spoiler alert. Everyone, this is going to be spoiled for 15 seconds. We'll dive in more. Dell's wife's dead, mm-hmm. we find out. And he's been on the road for eight years, sort of by himself. And that, like... In retrospect, while you're having the realization with Steve Martin later, you're like, 
ah, like he's feral. Mm. He's gone to seed. Like his wife died when he was 29, if we just assume what John Candy's age is at this time. Yeah. Unless he's meant to be playing much older. Right. Unless like that perm is meant to give him a decade or whatever. <laughs> but probably not. He gets, he's acclimated to cheap motels. This is his area. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, okay. Like, but to that point, yeah, to mm. your point, Clem, I'm like, I thought the same thing. I was like, but you're a grown ass man. Like, yeah. like, even if you're going to do sinus clearances, let the room know. Just let him know that that's coming at you. I mean, he's un, he's undomesticated he and or he's allowed himself to become undomesticated. He's returned to the wild. This is a movie about an indoor and an outdoor cat who yeah. have an adventure together. Exactly. It's about an, it's about an indoor cat and a dog. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, well, I know we'll talk more about this later on when the revelation, when he tells, or when Steve Martin figures it out, when Neil figures it out. But the sixth sense part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's about loneliness, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's about what happens to men when they're and they're both they're both actually lonely. They're both fundamentally lonely yeah. men, but for different reasons. It's a buddy movie about two deeply heartbroken men. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I don't think I've ever, you see like now, like, uh, or not, I say now, and I was going to talk about Lethal Weapon, a movie that came out either right before or right after this came out. But Mm. it's like, you know, the dynamic is like, there's like a crazy guy and like a put off guy or whatever, but like just two sad guys. together that was the original title (laughs) just two sad guys just two sad guys and one sad guy through his style of sadness teaches the other sad guy some lessons and together they become not sad so clementine i am not making good time here if we might say i am struggling to get to my destination (laughs) Um, and i would love for you to summarize for us and to take the baton from me if you would okay i will i will take the baton they're in the motel room. They have this big blow up. Steve Martin, Neil realizes that he's gone too far. He's hurt and wounded this person, which I guess is like the sliver of humanity that's in there that he's like, okay, that's even for me. I don't want to be that kind of person. I heard an interview with, or it was on Unspooled, and that when they were talking about this movie in particular, they were saying like one of it, and I can't remember if it has happened at this point in the movie or if it happens a little bit later, but there's a part where. Steve Martin like already doesn't like Dell and I think it might be on the train or something but he sees mm. him like sort of lugging his his trunk and again with his face acting as you said you see mm. him begrudgingly like be angry at it but like he's not gonna not help him yeah so you yeah. get these like little tiny glimmer like this man has a heart he just can't fucking access it at any given time well and he works in corporate ads so like we know that the 80s rule is that anyone who works in corporate advertising is either a complete schmuck or yeah. someone who was once good who has been kind of calcified into a complete schmuck yes, or an almost sure. complete schmuck. And so the, the moment is like, how do you stop that calcification from becoming fully like non-refundable basically? Yes. So he's like, okay, I've gone too far. Goes and climbs up back into bed. They go back to sleep. They wake up in the morning and they're cuddling. And then we have the one weird sort of almost obligatory moment in any kind of 80s movie between two men, which is the homophobic scene where they sure. realize that, like, they've been cuddling and they have to, like, mass, like man up. Like, oh, did you see that, that Chicago Bears game? Yeah, great game, great game. Because, God forbid, two men 
two deeply lonely, deeply broken men find solace and comfort in platonic touch with each other. This was the first time, I'm curious about your take on that, because this was the first time I, I'm not going to say I enjoyed that scene necessarily, but this is the first time that I was like, they let that scene play out for a long enough time where they let their insecurity Mm. be the butt of the joke. Like, they seem... When they're like, they're like, you know, did you see the Bears game? They're going to go all the way this season. Like, yeah, they look like such clowns in their tri- their recovery. And I don't think that John Hughes was going mm. for like a woke, like homophobia scene. No, 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 no. He wasn't like, how do we how do we subvert people's ideas about homophobia here and change a nation? Right. But I was surprised because they let it go beyond the like the hand pillows kissing mm. ear thing that they let it get to the point where they just look like clowns trying to make up for it that I was like oh like that's that's less hard to watch than like almost any scene in 16 candles yeah well I mean yeah for many reasons for many with reasons, the 16 yeah. candles one I think that I agree with you I mean I think I recognize that it's played in terms of being the obligatory kind of like we need to remind everyone that male affection is fraught for sure but I also feel like watching it I wasn't like oh this is so homophobic I'm gonna turn this off now right, and right. not enjoy it like I didn't even feel guilty about enjoying it necessarily yeah but i think that if the exact same like if they remade that movie now which um, at some point i'm sure they'll try to do mm-hmm. even the same like length of time it just wouldn't wouldn't hit the same like yeah i think it's something as well about the steve martin and john candy play characters who we love but ultimately we love them because it's steve martin and john candy so there's something very warm about these two and john candy in particular who is not a very masculine guy there's no world in which you could imagine him not i don't know like the the jumping up and having to like reassert their masculinity it's just so ridiculous as you said it's like almost it's almost endearing that they feel like they would need to reassert a masculinity they don't even have you know they're like eight-year-old boys. <laughs> can I pitch finishing this in 30 seconds? And then we can talk about the actual themes of the movie. I'll give you a minute. They keep missing connections back and forth on whatever travel medium they're engaging in until the end. <laughs> it's all vignettes and funny bits and John Candy singing the mess around and car accidents and it keeps happening. They reconcile in the hotel room, but they, he keeps getting on Neil's nerves. They go their separate directions, but they keep coming back together. Fate has put them together. And when they finally make it and go their separate ways, which Dell has made possible, on the train, Neil realizes that Dell, who's been talking about his wife the entire time, uh, his wife is dead. Neil goes back to go get Dell to be like, what the fuck is going on? Let's go to my family and enjoy Thanksgiving. Dell explains to Neil his wife has been dead for eight years and juries out on how unhoused he is. Like, is does he have a home does, that he just doesn't go to? Is his wife the home and she's dead? No, I think he's a he's a full time hotel man. There's a real there's Ooh. people have feelings. He goes with Neil back to the house for Thanksgiving. They make it just in time or after Thanksgiving. When the marketing for this movie suggests that they're on the road for 72 hours, which doesn't make any sense. They are reunited. 
Neil has the weirdest moment in the history of cinema reconnecting with his wife and uh, <laughs> the family now knows Dell, who's probably Uncle Dell from here on out. I just want to talk about the ending of this movie yes. because like he brings Dell to his house. It is Thanksgiving. The whole family is there. There's all these older relatives who we don't care about. <laughs> and then his sad faced wife comes slowly down the stairs and Steve Martin is like, this is my friend Dell or whatever. And it's so fraught. It feels like he's like, honey, this is we're bringing this man into our lovemaking. He's gonna, <laughs> we're going to create a throuple with him. This is my friend Sloth. He's going to live with me now because I love you. She, yeah, you're right. You're right. She calls him Mr. Griffith. Yeah. Yes. She's like Mr. Griffith. And I was like, what got cut? <laughs> what did get cut? Why is this the vibe? Because it's not even clear that he's, that Neil has spoken about Dell on the, he's, he barely speaks to his wife while he's on the road. No. Why does she know his name? <laughs> totally. Have they had sex? <laughs> is that the backstory? The DVD that came out recently that they found all of this footage at the Hughes estate hmm. had 70 extra minutes. Wow. There might be in that 70 minutes a 20 minute conversation between Neil and his wife where he explains what's going on with Dell. Mm -hmm. We have no idea. Yeah, it's like when they cut to her upstairs, he comes in and the, the three beautifully dressed children are just randomly standing in the foyer <laughs> of the house. This is a house that has a foyer. And they're like, Daddy's home. Neil's home. And they cut upstairs. Susan's sitting in this like very dimly lit bedroom. She's like scrapbooking. Like what is like she? Like she's waiting to hear that maybe he's died or something. Thinking about which of her children she's going to smother after she puts them all to bed tonight. And she's like, oh, he's home. He's been away for three days in the middle of the week, but he's here. He's been away at the war. I know. If I, I, I think if I were married to someone and I had three kids under eight. If my husband disappeared for three days and he wasn't contributing to childcare, I would simply not notice. And why is it so important? This, again, this is the holiday thing. I know, like it, it's formed the basis of a theme of countless holiday movies. But why is it so important that he be home for Thanksgiving? Here, here's what I think, Clementine. Here's, here's my theory. Okay, I hate Thanksgiving so much and i'm sure a lot of other people do i'm nodding aggressively i just want people to know yeah and i have a great thanksgiving tradition with friends who i spend time with who are like family to me and i love my thanksgivings now but like thanksgiving as a whole and the way i experienced it growing up is to quote mark corrigan a macabre charade where you sit with your extended family who you mostly don't talk to around the carcass of a giant dead bird who no one really has any idea how to prepare in a way that people will enjoy. Because if it, if turkey was a good animal to eat... We'd eat it more often. We would not have endless tutorials about how to do it. People right. would know how to do it. But anyway... And you're doing it while actively through ritual upholding a lie mm -hmm. in which we were sort of good visitors to yeah. this country yes. and were welcomed by people who were like stoked for us to be here. Yes. And so it's like lies on top of lies on top of lies. It's like the national lying day. And also, Clem, do you know about the turkey pardon? I do know about the turkey pardon, <laughs> mainly, I think, from Veep. Yeah. That's great. Clem, what is the turkey pardon? 
The turkey pardon is uh, the president every year chooses two turkeys to pardon from being slaughtered Mm -hmm. for consumption on people's Thanksgiving tables. Uh, It's unclear to me whether or not they just go back into the pool of turkeys that may be selected for slaughter the following year. Sure they do. I think as, as a lesbian pointed out on Veep, they're given to a petting zoo where they immediately collapse under the weight of their own bodies because they weren't bred to exist. <laughs> it's a very strange tradition to acknowledge the widespread, unnecessary torture torture of a particular breed of animal that is otherwise never eaten well we eat turkey on sandwiches but like at no other time do people sit around an entire turkey we just don't turkey's not really an australian i mean you can go and you can get like turkey at the deli you know you can get turkey meat but like you don't just like cook a turkey at home you know and i'm assuming that like on a random March evening, you wouldn't just be like, let's roast a turkey. No. Not unless you were having a manic episode. <laughs> and I'm serious about that. That's not even exaggeration. And so Thanksgiving is like, you come together. It's this ritualistic, this thing where like, you have to be there. You have to be at the table and you have to have out, you know, the cranberries of some kind. And you can, you know, and some people have elitist cranberries and some people have normal cranberries where you can see the ribbing of the can. <laughs> it's the difference between Neil and Dell. It's like, yes. the, the... those are those two characters as represented by cranberry sauce. <laughs> and it's like, and we place so much emphasis on like, you have to be there on the day or else you're a bad family member. You're a bad kid. You're a bad dad. You're a bad whatever. And then if you are there on the day, you cannot show up for your family for the, all the other days of the year. Well, and, and to that point, the reason for it, it not maybe not historically, although capitalism's always been around, obviously, but in this country, but like part of the the reason for it is that we've designated like one to five days where it's possible mm-hmm. for a family to all be together and the rest of the And t- then we all have to surge together mm. through clogging airport security lines across our great nation and then we all ignore each other again. Right. But specifically because the rest of the time we can't all get off from work at the same time. Mm. Yes. Like that's what adds the pressure. And a lot of people can't because they have to send, rent, rent a car to Steve Martin. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So one of the things, like leaving aside for a second the horrible truth and history behind Thanksgiving in America, it is a nice idea outside of that to think that there could be a day that you spend together with your friends and your loved ones where you just give thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, that, it's different to Christmas because it's not about like exchanging gifts or anything. It's just literally we've come together and we're just giving thanks for each other. I, I like the idea of that. But I don't understand why it's so close to Christmas. I mean, I get the, the date of it. Like, I understand. It's a great, important question. But Christmas doesn't have to be where it is. It's just there because early Christians co-opted Saturnalia or whatever. I know, but this is, what, this is what I don't understand how you... It's like, to me, when I think about the physical weight of it, it's like the end of the year is, like, held down by an incredible amount of weight like yeah well from a business perspective you assume like when i ran a company the grand farce is that you stay open from november 1st through the end of the year even mm-hmm. though you can't get anything done from november 15th through the end of the mm. year because everyone mm-hmm. is in transit or gone or sort of they've taken some time off or whatever but we all still operate like the country's open like mm-hmm. if this were a proper fucking situation we would just Mm -hmm. take november and december off Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's there's something there's something in that in the movie which again I don't think that John Hughes would have intended necessarily, but the idea that like America as the kind of fantasy Disney project of America that people want to believe America is, it runs like because of the machinery of the working class and the machinery of the people who staff the motels and who staff yeah. The, yeah. the rental, like the car rental places and even like the airline staff, the diner staff, like the guy with the pickup truck who comes to get you. Yeah. <laughs> None of those people get to go home for the holidays. Right. You know, they just they keep the country moving. Right. And then you've got Neil, who's like very much part of corporate America. That's like, well, you guys are fucking making this harder for me. Yeah. And I don't know. There's something about that, like that meeting of those two. I know we've kind of covered that already, but it's just interesting to me that when I think when people think about why they love this movie, they probably don't think because it, it shows the working mechanism of, of America. And maybe we should think more about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this is, you know, a lot of movies give us the chance to think about things by not realizing that we're thinking about them. And there's something, I don't know, they're, like to the theme of like isolation that like, they're both like clearly searching for meaningful connection. And Steve Martin like really doesn't want to have a meaningful connection and mm. is forced to have one by circumstance. Yeah, for sure. Oh, no, I was just going to say when, when you end up at the end of this movie with like the the view of the big, massive house and we're sort of yeah. being directed to kind of be oh, relieved. Thank God. Thank God this family is okay yeah this very privileged family in their giant house with their extension thank god it's they're okay the couple's okay the husband and wife are going to be okay and now Dell has a he has a little kennel yeah a little kennel <laughs> he's brought home this stray dog that he's found and he's going to be loved forever that's what makes that scene so weird is because you're right it's like that scene is set up in a way where it seems like it thinks that it's selling us a resolution that none of us were asking for. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not like, oh, thank God the family's back together and safe as a nuclear family. Like, Neil was benefiting, and I, his wife had to do all the labor by Clem's book. His, um, but Neil was benefiting by getting outside of this sort of like all of the expectations of what he was sort of like putting on, on himself. Like these guys mm. were growing together. And the last thing I ever wanted really was to be like, I just want to see the family back together. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> so what we want in some is the Thelma and Louise ending <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where Neil turns to Dell and says, let's keep driving. <laughs> I don't want that poor lady and her kids to be abandoned. I don't want that. But their family formation is not helping anybody. <laughs> you know what? She'll be fine. She'll be fine. She's resilient. She has the power of a single tear rolling down her cheek. So she's not going to be alone for long. One of those saline tears. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Bacon wanted to beat Steve Martin to that cab so he could fly to Chicago first and yeah. boink Mrs. Steve. It'll all work out. Mrs. Steve. <laughs> It's interesting to me as well that I think this movie would be way less compelling if it didn't have two actors who I love. And I really yeah. love Steve Martin and I love John Candy. And they're kind of timeless in that, to me, Steve Martin will sort of always perpetually be 60 years old and John <laughs> Candy will always be alive. Yeah. yeah. And I miss, I guess I miss the feeling that I had of 
watching a movie like that with your family and you know like that the great outdoors uncle buck Mm. that whole series of movies in the 80s where it just felt very simple to understand what Mm -hmm. what the purpose was what the message was and then the message of this was like you know relax a little bit rub along with someone and get home for the holidays and find a friend on the road and make him your own you know i do think though that like in the context of um i've just released a book called I Don't, The Case Against Marriage. And it talks a lot about like domestic labor and, you know, the history of marriage, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that obviously I'm kind of laughing and joking about in the book is this threat that women who are either unmarried or, or certainly unmarried by choice or who leave marriages, oh, well, good luck. You're going to be old and alone. Enjoy your cats. Like this perpetual mm-hmm. kind of threat against unpartnered women is that we are the ones who can't cope with being alone in the world. We are right. the ones who like just fall apart the moment that we don't have someone to go home to. And obviously we know that that's not true. Yeah, statistically, it's not true because widowers, like when a man's wife dies, his life expectancy goes down. And when a woman's husband dies, her life expectancy goes up. Exactly. And I mean, when a man's wife dies, he doesn't know how to hang the towels up in the shower and he's using the vibrating bed. And But I mean, really more than that, like the loneliness factor, when you think about who's lonely, yeah. if this reality of like women's inevitable loneliness if they stay single is deeply understood and and held to be true why is it that we have so many movies about lonely sad Hmm. men who have lost all connection with the world because they don't have a wife there to socialize them for everybody right it's almost like there's a theme (laughs) emerging and uh i want to read that book Well, I'm going to send you a copy. Please do. It's difficult to imagine him being the way that he is, being so like intolerant and miserable. It's difficult to imagine that he goes home and he switches with his family. It's not that like John Candy isn't one of his kids, but kids are John Candy, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They smell terrible. Yeah. They make so much noise. They don't understand how (laughs) physics work. They are a lot less agreeable at certain ages. Yeah. They use way too much water in the bathroom. (laughs) Well, we know that Neil is a father in this movie. Mm -hmm. Technically. Who, Clem, in your view, is the daddy of planes, trains, and automobiles? Uh, unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to go with Neil again, not because he exemplifies the best parts of daddies, but because he is the characterization of the worst, most intolerant kind Mm -hmm. of daddy, you know, where he, and he learns a lesson about himself. So there's like personal growth, but I mean, there's not, I feel like there's not a lot of options for the daddy role in this. And unfortunately, I don't know enough about his wife to give it to her. So I'm going to go with Neil. I'm going to say, and I don't know what the character's name is, but I'm going to go with Edie McClurg's character who mm-hmm. works at Marathon Car Rental. Also a good choice. She has dealt with outraged customers swearing at her nonstop, saying that it's not about her, but it's about the service, whatever. She has dealt with this abuse before, has learned how to process and uh, uh, respond in a measured way that probably makes people in this situation even more wild, but is probably also satisfying for her. And she tells him that he's fucked, which I think (laughs) is tremendous. He's great. Sarah Marshall. Um, My daddy is obviously John Candy. He's perfect. 
I remember watching I Don't Know What with my dad when I was a kid and him pointing out John Candy and the tone that made me know that this was an important person in my parents' mm-hmm. lives and in the adult world I was trying to figure out. And yeah, he's kissed the best. I do feel like he's still with us, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as much as anyone can be. And then Best Supporting Daddy Awards to Steve Martin's wife's eyebrows, <laughs> which are doing so much because she isn't really allowed to do anything else in this movie. But so she's really doing it all with her eyebrow acting. And uh, boy, would it have been nice to have spent even one more minute figuring out what her deal was of runtime. But whatever, whatever. And also to John Candy's trunk, which is such an important prop. It sure is. And they all, it means they always have something to sit on. <laughs> Can we take a second just before we finish to like really pay homage to John Candy and how sure. important he was to all of us, obviously? Yeah. John Candy to me just feels like you still feel the absolute tragedy of someone with that immense talent and heart and warmth dying in their sleep at the age of 43. Mm-hmm. And what could we have had from him if he were able to live longer. And what might he have enjoyed? Yeah, the the way that I heard it described by another another podcaster in 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 uh doing some research for this is like that John Candy for a lot of people of a particular age and we are all this age is someone who just lives entirely in our childhood and mm. past young and as a result like we just have this kind of, you know, he's captured in amber in our imaginations in many ways. And then when you watch movies with him, they were very likely movies that you watch Mm -hmm. as a child with Mm -hmm. a family. With our own relatives, some of whom Mm. are not around anymore. Yeah, Mm. exactly. And so as a result, he is kind of like a super, he's like a totem. Like he is really a... He's like our own uncle. I know this is going to sound so on the nose and I don't mean it to, but he is like our own Uncle Buck. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's like watching movies of your favorite uncle who died way too soon and feeling like, oh, I just would love to like give you one more hug, you know? For sure. Well, he, the, the only other behind the scene thing I have that I think applies to this is that he, like, according to the, the crew of the movie, Steve Martin, super lovely, but quiet and like doesn't isn't funny off screen he just does that Mm -hmm. on screen uh which i know many people who like work with and around him and that seems to be still the case which is great but extremely generous but john candy is the guy who would learn everybody's first name and Mm. thank them individually at the end of the day like he would go up Mm -hmm. to all of the crew on set know their name thank them personally for like their work on that day and then leave Mm. and that's tremendous like that's Mm. a thing that like Nobody in that position has to do, but they do it clearly from a like real place. And, you know, and this is like not to be cynical, but this was like before you were performing for an audience beyond Mm. beyond Mm -hmm. just the movie audience. And he was doing it. So I think that that's so lovely. Mm -hmm. I will just say that I think that this movie is a great illustration of a Bible verse. I know I'm not a big Bible girl most of the time, and that's because most of the Bible seems to be about incest. <laughs> but... Which is only acceptable in Virginia Andrews books. <laughs> exactly. You just got the Bible a whole bunch of new fans. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You're not, you're going to be disappointed. But this is this is a good one. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Mm. I love that. 
Perfect. Mm. Uh, we love you, John Candy. Thanks for doing it. N- not everything in the Bible is terrible. A lot of it is, yeah. but there are some pretty good life lessons in there. There's some poetry. Yeah, yeah. It's like the 1999 version of House on Haunted Hill, a complete snooze, but every so often Jeffrey Rush turns up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to our guest, Clementine Ford, for being here. Check out her book, I Don't. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing this episode. Thank you, uh, you, for listening. I hope that whatever you're doing for these holidays uh, doesn't do you in. I hope that there are things that you can do to help maintain your sanity Listen to back episodes of the show. We'd love uh, to have your ears on us. Thanks to Fresh Lash for providing the beats that make our episodes sound so sweet. You can find us on socials, wherever socials happen. You can find us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. We'd love to have you over there if you are not already and you can get bonus episodes. So more for those ears. That's it. That's all. Uh, you can no longer make the call. That was a reference to the top five at five on WCYY in Portland, Maine. They would uh, give you the phone number to call and make your vote for whatever song you wanted. Probably a corn song or um, a Goldfinger song. <laughs> Maybe like In the Meantime by Space Hog. And then, you know, a minute before the show started, this guy Rob would come on and he'd say, that's it. That's all. You can no longer make the call. And that will be in my brain until the day that I die. Anyway, thanks for being here. We look forward to talking with you all next week. And don't forget that you, my friend, you are good.